title today, The Good, The Bad and The Forgiven, concerns of course the two main characters who encountered Jesus in this dinner party that he attends at the home of Simon the Pharisee. The good is Simon himself, so he liked to think, respectable member of the community, religious leader, general, all-round, upstanding member of society. The bad, the bad is the woman, a woman of ill repute, as we gather, who gate crashes Simon's exclusive party with the famous rabbi, and who proceeds, as Simon would see it, to make something of a scene. But then comes the shock factor of the whole thing. The forgiven is also the woman. And this is what we want to explore together today. How is it? That the good Simon leaves with nothing, while the bad woman leaves with everything. Well, uh, in many people's eyes, it's a scandal. And, well, this is the topic before us today. It is a scandalous one. It's the topic of grace, which we might define as the undeserved, unmerited mercy of God towards sinners. And grace is very much at the very heart of this passage of Scripture that is before us here. In the incident that takes place, we really are taken right to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the very core of the good news that he has brought. And that is that forgiveness is available to all without exception. All, that is, who would come to Christ 
as the woman did, and receive it as his free gift. So what do you think about the subject of forgiveness then? It would be interesting to do one of these word association games, you know, and if I said forgiveness, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear that word? There will be all different things, I'm sure. Maybe some of us might sympathise with what C.S. Lewis, the Narnia author, once wrote in one of his books when he said, Forgiveness is a wonderful idea until we have someone to forgive. And he was a very insightful guy, C.S. Lewis. But of course, the thing is, it's not so much forgiveness between you and me, or between you and you, that is at the heart of this incident, as it is the kind of forgiveness that God offers to all of us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Carl Menninger, who was an American psychiatrist who died in 1990, famously said once, that if he could persuade all of the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven and would not be held against them, then 75% of them could walk out the next day. It seems that we all have an inbuilt need to know that our sins are forgiven, that we are accepted, and that our misdeeds will not be held against us. And I wonder, do you have that assurance in your own life today? As you've come to church here. Do you have that assurance? Are you certain that your misdeeds are not going to count you out of heaven when that time comes? And I'm assuming that we're all realistic with ourselves enough to know that misdeeds and sin is a reality in the lives of us all. Well, what Luke shows in his gospel here is that Jesus came. And what he shows across his whole gospel really is that Jesus came with a ministry of preaching and healing to meet every human need. And here in this incident at Simon the Pharisee's house, we see a woman who was reviled by polite society, and we see her find her greatest, deepest needs truly met in the rabbi to whom she had come. And as we consider this encounter between the three of them, Jesus, Simon, And the woman, who sadly isn't named, it would be a great thing to know her name. We can ask her uh, when we meet her in glory, of course, and we'll find out, perhaps. But as we consider the encounter between them, we can unearth a great deal about the forgiveness that Jesus offers. uh, The forgiveness that he delights to give to all who would ask him for it. And so, what follows, therefore, are four things about forgiveness. The first of which is the offence of forgiveness. And uh, there it is, the offence of forgiveness. For Simon the Pharisee, the message that he gets through what happens here is deeply offensive to him. And it's offensive for two main reasons. First, it's an offence to Simon to hear that he himself needs to be forgiven. Because as we've... we've, uh, Uncovered already, Simon, in his own eyes, is a respectable man. He is one of the religious leaders in the community. Whenever there's a a big event that takes place, he'll be sitting there up the front in the prominent seats, seen by all. People look to him as being a truly righteous man. And here comes Jesus, eating the food from Simon's table, and actually having the audacity to suggest that Simon needs to be forgiven. Who does he think he is? 
We can imagine Simon thinking, if there was a thought bubble above his head, who does this guy think he is to tell me that I need to be forgiven? But there's more to the offense of forgiveness for Simon than just that. And secondly, we can observe that it's an offense to Simon to hear that this woman that comes in can be forgiven. So it's an offense to him to hear that he needs to be forgiven. It's also an offense to him to hear that she can be forgiven. Because in his eyes, there's a great contrast between him and her. He, the respectable, upstanding figure in society... She, at the opposite end of society, a woman with a murky past indeed. Simon must have wondered how she even managed to get into his house in the first place, because I think we can be fairly certain that he hadn't invited her. And so he despises this woman. And for Jesus to accept her, a woman with what one of the writers calls a news of the world past, although news of the world now, of course, is in the past itself, But uh, you get the point. For for Simon to see Jesus accept her as if she had no past, as if the past did not matter, well, that is deeply offensive to Simon's sense of moral uh, rectitude and general decency. Now, the commentators are generally agreed that the woman's sin was probably prostitution or something else of that kind of sexual nature. And her public reputation seems to support that view. But we must say that ultimately we are not in fact told about the nature of her sin. And maybe that's a good thing that we're not told, because the message of the gospel is that God's grace is greater than all of our sin, whatever it may be. And Simon, well, Simon just cannot believe what he is hearing and seeing as Jesus accepts the woman. But Jesus' attitude towards sinners is totally different to Simon's. Simon looks at the woman and he can only see her sin. He can only see her past. He can only see her reputation. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, knows the transforming power of the gospel. He knows the transforming power of forgiveness. And he sees what she could be. He sees her so differently. But for Simon, of course, that's, that's way too much. It's, it's offensive. His view of acceptance with God is that you must earn your way and that you ultimately get what you deserve. You keep the law, you do good, you're trying to be upright, you're trying to remain unpolluted from sin. So you certainly don't associate with the kind of uh, moral plebs like that woman. And so if Jesus accepts this woman, with Simon would think with a past as long as your arm, then all of Simon's works and deeds, all of his pretended goodness and righteousness is devalued. What he has failed to understand, of course, is that our own efforts, our own striving can never actually make the grade, can never actually make us right with God. Only Christ can do that through what he has done, through his death and resurrection. And what is wrong with Simon, therefore, is not just that he has failed to acknowledge his own sinfulness. Not just that, but the fact that actually, when it comes down to it, his own good deeds are corrupt as well. Because God says, our righteous acts, not our unrighteous, our righteous acts are as filthy rags in his sight. And in fact, I suppose you could say that when Simon does all the good deeds that he's trying to do, 
he's actually acting selfishly and in his own interest because he thinks he is building up some kind of a merit or favor with God. So he has totally failed to see himself as God sees him. And that is why this message of forgiveness is so offensive to him. And that remains true today, of course. Uh, it certainly is true today. Those who choose not to see themselves as sinful, not to see themselves as fallen or flawed in any way, those who think that they are pretty respectable, decent living, tolerant people, they also are offended with this message of forgiveness and its necessity. Simon doesn't want Christ's forgiveness. Because Simon doesn't see himself as being in need of Christ's forgiveness. But the truth is, as we've already said, that only in Christ can any of us ever be acceptable to God. don't know if any of you ever go around reading uh, gravestones and walking through cemeteries. Uh, probably not, because it's, I think, a minority interest. Um, but uh, occasionally, well, the, my line of work has caused me to be uh, in cemeteries more than most, and uh, it can be interesting what you see there. Uh, there's a celebrated uh, case of the Scotsman Jimmy Wyatt, who uh, was uh, buried. He was renowned in life for being a bit of a grip, and in uh, death this was confirmed because on his gravestone were chis was chiseled the words, interred beneath this kirkyard stain lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt who died one morning just at ten and saved a dinner by it. Interesting how people choose to be remembered, isn't it? But anyway, the point is I wanted to tell you about another gravestone inscription which was prepared for his own stone in advance by a man called John Berridge. And he was a vicar in the Church of England and the words he composed were as follows. Here lie the earthly remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton, and an itinerant servant of his master Jesus Christ, who loved his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. And then the uh, inscription goes on. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without a new birth. The guy was an evangelist even in his death, wasn't he? So as folk walked past his gravestone, they would read this. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without a new birth. I was born in sin, February <coughs> 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754. He was ordained by that stage, by the way. Was admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1751. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. Fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. I guess he got one of his pals to do that last bit for him. Because uh, uh, it would be difficult otherwise, wouldn't it? But there he is, a man who in 1756, at the age of 40, having been a vicar for five years. I don't know what he was preaching, but something. And he finally came to the point of coming to see himself as God saw him. That's to say, as a sinner in need of forgiveness and reconciliation to God through Christ. And he saw that this could only come about through Christ's accomplishment on his behalf. And not on any amount of human striving or effort to try to make himself 
good. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter declared that he is Jesus, that is, is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that salvation is found in no one else. And that is offensive to many in our supposedly tolerant world today. But Christ is the only way to be forgiven, to be right with God. And so that brings us on to the second thing uh, we find about forgiveness. That is the necessity of forgiveness. Point number one was the longest, by the way, okay? I always like to tell folk that if it has been the case, uh, in case people are getting worried. But that was the longest one. Second, the necessity of forgiveness. And in telling Simon about the need for forgiveness, Jesus tells this mini parable in verses 41 to 42. The NIV puts it that two men owed a great deal of money. In fact, it would be more accurate at this point to follow some of the other translations and simply say two debtors and remove the gender idea from it. Because that brings it very much closer to home for Simon in this encounter. Because this story is about him and a woman. The woman. It's about a man and a woman. And one owes a certain amount, which to put it in terms for today, I worked out, would be a £50,000 debt for the one and a £5,000 debt for the other. And neither can pay. And so, unexpectedly, unusually, the lender graciously cancels both debts. Doesn't have to do it, but he chooses to do that. And so, Simon's probably starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable at this point. And Jesus asks the question, which in verse 43, he very grudgingly answers, I suppose, he says. But the question about which of the debtors loved him more is not to be taken to imply that the woman had more to be forgiven than Simon. In fact, the meaning is quite the opposite. The point is that neither of them can pay him back, and both of them are totally dependent upon the goodwill of the lender to cancel the debt. And that, as we have seen, scandalizes Simon. He cannot believe that he is being put in the same boat as this pitiful, as he sees her, sinful woman. And yet that is undoubtedly exactly what Jesus is saying to him. Simon cannot accept that message. He either cannot, or perhaps more realistically, he will not see his own sinfulness and therefore his consequent need of Christ for forgiveness. How can he have such an unrealistic view of himself? We ask ourselves, well... It seems that what he does is he uses the veil of comparison to hide his own, his own faults. The veil of comparison. You know how that works, don't you? You're driving along the motorway, gentlemen, and your wife comments that the speedometer, the needle is nearer 80 than 70. And just as she says that, a flame-red convertible sports car streams past, screams past you in the fast lane and disappears out of sight almost instantly. And you, you know what I'm going to say to you. So you kind of look over at him and then you look back at her and say, well, what about that then? And she says, quite rightly, I'm afraid, well, what about him? He may be going faster than you, but, but that's only because he's got a Porsche and you've got a beat-up Vauxhall Cavalier. That's the only difference between you, really. You're both speeding. And so with apologies to any Vauxhall Cavalier owners. 
That's exactly what Simon is doing with this woman. He's using her sinfulness to mask his own and to convince himself that while he deep down might maybe know he's not completely perfect, well, at least he's not as bad as her. But the truth is he's in exactly the same position as her. Described for us so simply and so bluntly by the Apostle Paul when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't say some made it, doesn't say some came close but were unlucky. All have sinned, all fall short. And the bottom line is that the story Jesus told Simon turns out to be a mirror for him. The only way out of this universal human problem of sin is the gracious cancellation of the debt, which will be as unearned as it is undeserved in every single case. Simon was trying to do back then what, sad to say, many people still try to do today. He was trying to bypass Christ and earn his own way with God. But forgiveness is necessary, as we say. And without it, all the good things that we might seek to do count for nothing. And that may seem to some of us like a harsh message, I don't know. But the Bible makes it clear that until we have been to Jesus to receive forgiveness, to be made right with God, then our righteous acts are as filthy rags in God's sight. Isaiah 64. So if the story teaches us anything, it is about the universal necessity of forgiveness. Third now, we see the evidence of forgiveness. The evidence of forgiveness. Now, we need to take care at this point to understand what's going on in verses 44 to 47. And in these verses, Jesus, speaking to Simon, recounts the ways in which the woman has taken care of his practical needs and shown devotion to him. She washed his feet, verse 44. She kissed him, verse 45. That's her kiss of greeting, of welcome. She anointed him, in verse 46. All of which... Jesus points out, Simon has singularly failed to do. And then Jesus says, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now, it would be possible, if a tad simplistic, to look at that and set it against everything that we've just been saying. And that it was her acts of love towards Jesus that had somehow earned her being forgiven by him. And you can see how somebody could look at that, these verses and see that. But let, let's look at the verse within the context of the incident to see what's going on here. We've already seen conclusively from the case of Simon that all manner of good deeds, however positive, are not sufficient to wipe out uh, the debt of our sin. There is too much to be paid off as per the parable. No, the woman's love for Jesus is not the ground of her forgiveness. It is the evidence. What the woman does for Jesus is the evidence that she has been forgiven. Here's the key. It seems to me, and to many in fact, that the woman was actually forgiven her sins before she came into the house here. 
before she came into Simon's house. That's the real logical explanation for what happens. Jesus is reclining at the table in Simon's house. This woman comes in and approaches him and falls at his feet and washes and all the rest. The way that really makes sense of this incident is if the woman had encountered Jesus before and he had been going around teaching, of course, she had heard his message of acceptance and forgiveness, she had responded to it, and now here she is having found him, demonstrating her gratitude to him and her love for him as a result of what he had done for her. That must be what had happened. Otherwise, what we're left with is a fairly random incident where some woman approaches Jesus and uh, just does all that uh, apparently spontaneously. No, we can be sure this is not the first time this woman met Jesus. Not the first time she encountered him. And it's the forgiveness that she had found with him and through him that motivates her to come and do this for him here. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ is a key sign of having received the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says in verse 47. Her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But, Jesus says, he who has been forgiven little loves little. And there's a great contrast, isn't there, between the woman and Simon. Well, at every point, but at this point, certainly. Because by the customs of the time, Jesus, a guest in Simon's home, would be entitled to expect him to provide him with water, to wash his feet, a kiss would be the customary way of greeting somebody coming to your home. And uh, these were the customs of the time, standards of hospitality, where we shake hands in the Scottish kind of uh, standoffish handshake and maybe a smile, maybe not, uh, thing where we do that. First century Jews did all these other things. But Simon hadn't done a single thing, had not done any of the standards of hospitality for Jesus. Compare him with the woman who can't do enough for Jesus. And we see that it's she who has clearly received forgiveness from him. The evidence is there and it can be seen. That is the transforming power of forgiveness. And the woman exudes love and gratitude and devotion towards the one who had forgiven her. She who had once been known for very different character traits has now been totally transformed by the power of forgiveness. And Jesus is still in the same business today. Christ is still transforming lives by the power of his forgiveness. Bad things in the past, yes, the woman could tick the box, and many today would tick the box as well. All today would tick the box at some level. And while it's true that the forgiveness that Christ offers is still available today, it is also true that those who have been forgiven much, love much. That remains true as well. And those who understand the true extent of what God has done and the cost to God himself through the cross of accomplishing that forgiveness, those who reckon with these things, like the woman, will never be able to do enough in response to the Lord Jesus Christ who has done all this for us. Occasionally, you see something in the media or elsewhere of an 
unexpected, almost inexplicable case of forgiveness. I noted way back in 2003, do you remember the case of uh, Detective Constable Stephen Oak, who was murdered by an illegal immigrant? And in the aftermath of that highly publicized case, his family shone through with astounding grace and poise through the court case that followed and the media interest, telling of how their Christian faith had enabled them to endure their agony. And D.C. Oak's father said publicly at the time, we have been praying for the murderer and we will continue to do that. I have forgiven him. That is why we are not deeply bitter and not angry and thrashing around wanting revenge. I will continue praying for this man. Imagine that. Somebody that killed your son. Those who have been forgiven much, love much, Jesus said. And what evidence of forgiveness there was from that family, the Oak family, and that awful situation that mercifully not many have to face. What a witness to Christ from them and to the transforming power of his forgiveness. Finally then today we see the assurance of forgiveness. The assurance that there is. Why is it if her sins have already been forgiven that Jesus says to her in verse 48 your sins are forgiven. If her actions prove She's already been forgiven. Why does Jesus tell her again now? Well, this is the assurance of forgiveness. Quite simply, she just needed to hear it again. It was good for her to hear it again. Like a wife wanting to hear her husband say, I love you. Even although, hopefully, she knows that he does. In a similar way, what an assurance. What a reassurance for this woman to hear these words again. Your sins are forgiven. And again at this point, the contrast comes back between the woman and Simon the Pharisee. And it's a contrast which is still at large in the world today. The woman has the assurance from Jesus that her sins are forgiven. And indeed, verse 50, that she has been finally and irrevocably saved through faith in Christ. And she therefore has nothing to fear. Not in that moment and not ever. Because she has depended for salvation not on herself but on Christ who says, come unto me. That's the woman. Simon, however, different picture altogether. Simon, if he persists in his belief that salvation is to be found through earning your way with God, through good deeds or whatever, well, he can never have any assurance. Nobody who goes down that road and who works within that mindset ever has any kind of assurance about the future. He has to wait until the end of his life and find out if his good deeds did outweigh the bad, if, if he did make the great. There can only ever be assurance through forgiveness. And those who belong to Christ, and I'm guessing that many, if not all of you, belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ know that it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to go through life knowing that our sins cannot count against us. Not just that they do not, but they cannot. Because God has dealt with our sins through the cross of His Son. And God is just. 
And God will certainly not require our sins be dealt with a second time. For in Christ, that is done and finished. And when he said, it is finished, it really is finished. The work that he completed there on the cross. It's a wonderful thing to go through life, knowing that what Jesus said to that woman that day is true. And it's what he would say to us today. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. So there we come to a close in this tale of forgiveness. A tale that scandalizes some indeed and causes some like Simon to be offended while at the same time it causes others like the people in verse 49 who always (coughs) seemed to be around on the fringes when Jesus was there. It causes some to wonder from the sidelines what it's all about. But the great thing The great thing, and in fact God's invitation today, is to leave the sidelines. Not to stay out there on the fringes, but to leave the sidelines and jump right into the centre of the forgiveness that he delights to extend to all who would come in humility, abandoning their own efforts, and come and put their trust in what Christ has done. It is necessary, if we would be right with God, And escape his coming wrath. It will show itself in our lives. If it is genuine forgiveness. As the way that we then love others. Reflects the fact that we ourselves have been forgiven much. And then there's that wonderful assurance. That Jesus would speak still to his followers today. Your sins are forgiven. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we think upon these things, we would reckon that were you not a forgiving God, then we would be in deep trouble. Were you not a gracious and merciful God, then there would be no hope for any of us. And so, therefore, we thank you and praise you, O Lord, that you are all of that, that through your Son and all that he has done, which for the the woman in the story was as yet future history, and yet she believed even then. And for us, O Lord, we can look back and see all you have done through your Son and his cross where he died, becoming sin for us, (coughs) being made sin so that we might be given his righteousness and have our sin loosed from off our own shoulders. Help us, O God, to reckon rightly with these things. Never to entertain for a second the idea that in some way we could be respectable enough to make it with you. But rather to do what the woman in the story did. To cast ourselves completely upon your mercy. And then to show, O Lord, in all that we are, in all that we do, in all that we say, from that point forward that we have indeed been forgiven much. So as we thank you for the greatness of the forgiveness you give, we give all praise and glory to you and to you alone, O God, our Saviour and our Redeemer. Amen.